Voyage. When we last left Jason, she had just escaped her assailant, jumping out of her truck, fleeing into the home of a man she knew, and telling him to get his gun and help her. Here's what happened next. So he got dressed and took me to the deputy sheriff's home. And um, the officer came out to ask me what was wrong, and I was telling him what had happened. But he kept repeating, well, what's wrong? What happened? But, and I thought, how ridiculous. I'm telling him what happened. And um, they told me later that my mouth was moving, but no words were coming out. So by then they knew I was in shock. And they called the EMTs who came right away and took me by ambulance to the hospital in Alpine. Here's one of the EMTs who accompanied Jason to the hospital in Alpine, Ann Davy. I'm a retired registered nurse. Well, I was working full-time as a medic for Tillinger Medics, doing teaching, teaching uh, boatmen and various people along the border to be, you know, what to do in an emergency, you know, advanced Red Cross advanced first aid, some EMTs, just things like that. And uh, when this event happened to Jason, I was um, considered a medic. I was medic six. So I was advanced EMT, and uh, we ran a private ambulance service in that part of the county. Rode in the back with her, and my boss drove. It's about a 90-minute drive. It's 80 miles plus. It's a long way, yeah. Well, you have to be able to advance care. You know, you have to be able to you know, put in chest tube and do cricothyrotomies for breathing and just a myriad of things. You know, my boss was pretty advanced. So, you know, you need to be able to give morphine and Demerol before having heart attacks and, you know, different drugs you use for that and, you know, monitor their hearts and defibrillate them. You know, all, it's just everything you can imagine. <laughs> Actually, I think the worst thing I ever did was spend 90 minutes in the ambulance with Jason and and she told me everything from beginning to end. I thought, you know, it, it just, I was ter terrified by the time we got to the hospital, just absolutely terrified. And uh, I'd never felt so vulnerable on a call ever. <laughs> I felt like I was living it. I mean, she, she had such recall and it's like she had to get it out and I was her friend and, um, it was just so real, her telling, just almost minute by minute what happened. I mean, this took place for, I think, eight hours or something. I think that that was probably the hardest call I ever had, you know, what happened to her. It was just because I was her friend, and, uh, and she knew me well. Well, she was my neighbor. She probably lived half a mile away, <laughs> but that's a neighbor in that country. And uh, she lived by the post office. She was a postmaster. So, of course, anyone new to the area met Jason right away. So we became friends right away. Since Anne was Jason's neighbor, we asked her where she'd been during the event prior to accompanying Jason to the hospital. It wasn't the first time that night they'd been in close proximity. Well, I lived where I work, so yeah. And I remember that night, well, I don't know if it was more, more toward after midnight or something, 
where we slept, you could look out the window and see who was coming into the driveway. Because it was a little bit dangerous because, you know, there were not cartels back then, but there were people smuggling drugs. And so you wanted to, you know, somebody's coming into the aid center, you kind of want to get a look. And when they reach a certain point, these big lights come on like a football field. So, so I think the dog woke me up and I looked out that window and I saw someone start to come in and they didn't quite make it and then they backed out and it turned out that was Jason. She was trying to get to our aid center and he knew that we were medicos or something and he said, no, no, medico, medicos. So, and then she went back and headed on up the highway quite a ways and came to Ponchos. That's where she saved her own life. Anne was able to give us an outside perspective on the events immediately after Jason's escape. My boss went into the trailer and I stayed outside and her friend was out there. And um, I remember he was standing really close to the door and he was smoking a cigarette in one hand and he had a gun, his arm hanging down with a gun in the other. And I walked up to him and started talking to him. I saw he had his finger on the trigger. So I asked him to put the gun down. I said, just lay it on the ground. I said, it's okay now. You're safe and Jason's safe and just, you know. And uh, he really couldn't talk. He was, he was just terrified. He didn't know what happened. I, I remember he told me, he said, she ripped my storm door off. She, he said, it's metal and glass and she threw it in the driveway. He couldn't get over that. He didn't know what had happened. That's how much adrenaline she had going. She knew it's her last chance to save her life. And where she found the strength to do that, I think that that's part of her faith. I mean, she cried out to God and she just had it in that moment, you know. She's not a weightlifter. <laughs> I, didn't, I still didn't know what happened to her. And she laid down and, and on the, you know, when we got started on the trip to town, she wanted to talk. And so she started from the beginning and she didn't leave anything out. By the time we got to the hospital, I was absolutely terrified. I, just, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't understand it. And when we got to the hospital, <laughs> we're backing into the dock. And I remember she could see out the back windows and all the lights are on. And there must be 20 people standing there. And probably half of them were cops, you know. You know, you need a couple people to help you get a stretcher out, but she could walk. I, I think I erupted. <laughs> at those people because, you know, how insensitive. I mean, how can people do that? Who, who wants to gawk at somebody that's been through such a terrible experience? There were so many faces standing there, nurses and doctors and people I didn't even know. And the EMT woman was saying, come on, Jason, let's, let's get out. And I said, well, make all those people go away and I will. So she went out and asked them to disperse. We asked Anne what she said to make the crowd scatter. Probably something not nice, but I, I, I remember a lot of them were officers. I don't know who all was there. I don't know if it was an international incident or I don't know if the FBI was there, but I know she got drilled pretty good by you know four or five different ones. And at the end, I know they all came out in the waiting room and they were they were just amazed. They said, um, never had this happen before where a victim of such a violent crime has such recall. You know, which each and every officer that interviewed her, her she never wavered from her story. So They take you to a small examining room. 
there were two nurses and a doctor and um, I still was in, in pretty deep shock. They do a vaginal exam and it was like other exams that any woman has ever had except when I heard the doctor say oh there's sand and gravel and fluids somehow that broke into my consciousness and really brought me to a new awareness and I started crying and really sobbing and they all assured me the exam would be over soon and Indeed it was, and they brought me a hospital gown and told me there were officers outside who were ready to take my statement. And at that point, I was sitting on the edge of the exam table, and the officers walked in, and I was beginning to recount the story of what had happened. Uh, the officers present, uh, there was one officer from the sheriff's department, a deputy sheriff, Billy Pat McKinney, who was the constable of the Terlingua area. I believe there were two other male officers and they were probably DPS, Department of Public Safety officers. I, I don't know who else, what other agency was represented, but the only person I knew was Billy Pat McKinney, the constable. And it occurred to me that it was going to be pretty uncomfortable to tell them everything that happened to just these strange men. And I was very thankful that Billy Pat was there because I knew him, I knew his family. Uh, his daughter was on the school board with me and um, we had a good relationship, a friendly relationship. He's the only one that I did know. My name is Billy Pat McKinney. I was an officer a constable in precinct two when this all happened. My history as a law enforcement, I was in the Border Patrol for seven years. My principal job was tracking fugitives through the desert to catch them. I was a constable for 14 years and I was a, a customs officer for three years. And that's my history. And, and on October 26th, I was a constable of Precinct 2 in Brewster County, Texas. Dirt is older than I am, I found that out. But I'm 90 years old and I'll be 91 on the 22nd of September next month. On that morning, shortly after daylight, I received a call and I don't know where it was from, uh, but they told me that Jason had been raped and uh, that they were taking her to Alpine. So I went to the hospital. I, I met Jan and uh, she asked me what she was supposed to say. And I told her anything that she felt good about saying or didn't bother her too much. And we needed all the detail we could get, but make it easy on herself. We went into the interview and a deputy sheriff, I believe was doing the interview. He uh, told her the same thing. Anything you don't feel comfortable with, just don't say it. And we're here to find out what happened and all that stuff. And Jan began her story and she did an excellent job, I thought, of 
describing the event, and she put in more detail than I had ever heard before on that kind of thing. But when giving her statement, did Jason include the more fantastical elements of her story? Hearing the voice, forgiving her attacker, and suddenly being fluent enough to converse in Spanish? I didn't at first because in my mind I was thinking, that couldn't have really happened. You know, I don't want them to think I'm crazy. I was even thinking I was crazy. And so I thought, just, you know, don't mention that. But as I got into the story, it was such an integral part of the story that I finally just said, okay, I'm going to tell you what else was happening. And you may think I'm crazy and maybe I am, I don't know. But I have to tell you that this was also happening. And so um, these officers were all professional. They all had years of experience. This was unfortunately not a story they had not heard. I'm sure they had heard similar stories and uh, they acted in professional manners. Never once did I feel disbelieved, judged for not having fought back enough or whatever it is people think you're supposed to do. They were professionals. They listened to every word of my story and then recapped it in their own language so that all I had to do was say yes or no. Did this man break into your home? Yes. Did he take you away from your home? Yes. Did he rape you? Yes. Did he hold you against your will? Yes. At that, that's what they needed. They closed their booklets. The lead investigator turned off the recording machine. They thanked me. They looked stricken, really stricken. And their eyes were downcast and they left. We asked Billy Pat if he was surprised that Jason was able to forgive her assailant. Okay, I didn't think in her statement that she had forgiven the guy was all that unusual. I believe that that your defense system will cause you to do and say things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. And I, I just considered that part of it. Uh, I didn't find it out of line or anything. We also asked the EMT and Davy the same question. No, that's that's just like Jason. That's something she would do. It, you can't move on till you forgive. That's for sure. That's Jason. We asked Jason's son Noah as well. I I wasn't surprised by it on my mom's part, but when she told me how how uh, intensely the 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 power dynamic, she said the power she both of them could feel it, a power dynamic shift, a physically feel it when she said that. And he got this weird look in his, and she, she could tell he was scared for the first time he got scared. The fact that no one was surprised at all, that Jason was able to forgive her assailant further speaks to how Jason is clearly a very special person. But as Noah said, her assailant had his own reaction to being forgiven, which we'll hear much more about in a later episode. Back at the hospital, after Jason gave her statement. Uh, I didn't call anybody. Um, 
the nurses came in after that and said, we have a bed for you. Um, by this time, it's probably, I don't know, eight o'clock in the morning. And I was totally exhausted. And so she took me to a room and I went to bed, uh, wondering what I was gonna do for clothes the next day because they took the clothes that I had on for evidence. I slept for hours most of that day. When I finally did wake up the next day, I found a nice little pile of clothing next to the bed. The uh, crisis center, women's crisis center had brought some clothes for me to wear. And I took a shower and got dressed and heard a knock on my door. And it was a dear friend of mine um, who had come up from Terlingua. She, she lived down there also and uh, not full-time, but uh, she was there during this event and uh, came up to be with me. She was probably my best friend at the time. So um, she took me to a hotel and we didn't talk too long. I was still too exhausted. I needed to, um, I felt like I needed to call my father and my sister. And uh, my friend told me that she would bring Noah up uh, the next day, that he was fine. She told me who he was staying with and that um, she would bring him to Alpine the next day. Here again is Jason's son, Noah, who was 11 years old at the time. What was so strange about it, the day uh, of the event, or I guess it was the day after, if you time chronologically speaking, was another friend of mine's mother showed up at my friend's house. This friend lived basically across the road from me there uh, in, in Studi Butte, and his mother was married to the sheriff down there at the time. And she came in and she was like, you must, you must, she was Hispanic, but English was like her second language she spoke. She was like, you must come with me now. Like no explanations. I was like, well, what's wrong? I mean, I, I have my, my bike is here. Well, you can leave it, you can leave it with your friend, but you must come now. And I was just, I, I wasn't like a stranger, but it was still weird because even though I knew this person and it was the wife of the sheriff, she wouldn't tell me anything but insisted that I go with her. Now, one of the things my mother had always drilled into my head was don't go with people just because they said I said to. Um, but I knew this this woman, and, and I could tell she was serious, and she, was, she seemed kind of freaked out or upset too. So I left with her. I don't know why they came and picked me up, to be honest with you, that day. They should have just left me because it was a full two to three days after that before I even saw Jason. And I was basically there with that family and my friend, and which when she was ready to see me, I guess, is when I, I saw her. When she, she wasn't in Turling, when they had taken her to Alpine and then probably Fort Stockton. I don't know exactly where. Um, but that, that was probably the worst part of it for me because nobody told me anything. I just knew something extremely strange was going on. Um, and it was days later before I even saw Jason, and probably days after that before she told me anything. 
Well, I didn't realize I was really still in shock or something because I just stayed in my hotel room the next day and late that afternoon, it was already getting dark, um, there was a knock at the door and I called out, who is it? And no one answered. They just knocked again louder and I called out again louder, who is it? And this went on and on until I was finally screaming, who is it? Because I had just lost it. I had lost it. And when I quit screaming, I heard my friend say, it's me, I have Noah with me. And I realized that just that fear of even going to the door had just taken over. So I opened the door and Noah came in and she had brought hamburgers uh, with her. And Noah was happy to see a television in my room and we hugged and sat down and watched TV and ate hamburgers. While Jason was recuperating, the authorities literally were in hot pursuit. Now, what happens in a community as small as the Terlingua area is that everybody knows everything almost immediately. Law enforcement had, uh, when they got the initial re report, they had raced to Terlingua, went to the river, found my truck on the riverbank, empty, and went across the river into Mexico. There's a law known as hot pursuit. If you are in hot pursuit of a criminal, you can cross the border either way, coming into Texas, going into Mexico. They were in hot pursuit and uh, they did find this man. So I got in my pickup and went to Lajitas to see if the man had crossed the river yet. I found Jason's vehicle down there and followed his tracks to the, where a rowboat took people back and forth across the river. I got a good look at his tracks and he had one mark on his heel of his right shoe that identified him where I could pick him out amongst a bunch of tracks. About three miles in, sitting on a rock, smoking a cigarette, wearing a hat that was identifiable as my hat. He had items on him that were mine, checks, my credit cards, driver's license. And they had notified the nearest little village to him. And uh, the officials of that village had come out to where they were. And so the Texas law enforcement said, we want to take him back to Texas. He is wanted for a crime. And they said, well, we cannot release him until we contact the Federales, the federal police in Mexico. At which point they did, and the Federales refused to let him be taken back into Texas. By now, half of Terlingua and surrounding area is standing on the riverbank of the Rio Grande because they had brought this man back to the bank on the Mexican side and handcuffed him to an old vehicle while they waited to get permission to bring him back to Texas. So there was a mob of people on the Texas side watching all this and word was spreading 
like wildfire since there weren't that many people there uh, in the area since I was the postmaster and I was a school board member everybody knew me it was pretty tense one of these guys called me and they wanted me to assure Jason he was a dead man they had their snipers out there so I called Billy Pat <laughs> and Billy Pat took care of them and there were talk among some of the guys there well let's just go on across and help help them bring him back over here what are we waiting on but that didn't happen and so the officials would not release him to the Texas officials and Texas law enforcement came back to Texas that man was arrested in Mexico and taken down the river to that same city Ojinaga and put in jail there on the Mexican side the Mexican constable told the sheriff's deputy, you take him across the river now or you won't get him. And he wouldn't do it. You know, the constable was giving him this criminal and uh, the deputy went. So the federales came down and took him. Now Jason's assailant had been captured and was in the custody of the Mexican authorities. You might think that would be the end of the story, but in this story, it's just the beginning. Jason followed her attacker to Mexico, searching for justice. That's next time on Borderline. I'm Paget Brewster, and this is Borderline. Borderline is a production of Voyage Media. The series is based on Jason's book, Borderline, A True Story of Courage and Justice, available on Amazon. A link is in the show notes. You can help support Borderline by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. This helps spread word about the show. And subscribe now for future episodes. When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution. Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.